Mark chapter 11. Now, just to catch you up, I remember last week I had some, um, some from chapter 10 to finish up, right? So we're back in 11. And so last time Brandon preached, he preached on the triumphal entry. Remember that? So it's like Jesus' coronation, really exciting passage. He comes into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He looks around and he goes home. He walks back out to Bethany. Okay, and this is where we pick up our story. All right, this is where we are. And we're in Mark chapter 11. And we're going to pick up in verse 12. Let us give our attention to God's infinitely applicable word. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. It was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Whatever I tell you, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not answer him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That completes our reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that you would use it powerfully this morning. Lord, thank you that your spirit is here. And we do not trust in our own understanding. We turn ourselves over to you, both for the preaching and for the listening of your word. In the name of Christ, amen. Um, If I could speak to the teenagers for a moment, or preteens, we'll settle for that too. So have your parents ever been trying to explain something to you and you're like, yeah, 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 I already know that. Have you ever had that experience? 
Or uh, parents, have you had that experience? And you're like, no, you don't understand, or I wouldn't be saying this to you. Could you please pay attention? I don't know if anyone, parents and kids, can relate with that moment. I think that's what we have here. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus. And everyone's like, yep, I already know Jesus. I don't, there's nothing really new to know about Jesus. Yeah, 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 I already know. And so I just ask you, slow down just a little bit. And I think there's some things here that get underplayed about the character of Jesus. There's two in particular. One of them is his humanity. He was a human. He was fully man and fully God. And so as fully man, he got hungry and tired. And sometimes he had to collect information just like we do. Many people don't realize how real this is. We're going to see this in this passage. The other thing is, we're going to see that he's fully God. We're going to see him getting really righteously angry. So much so, it's almost a little bit scary. So zealously full of anger at the situation in the temple. So if you will with me, let's look closer at Jesus. This is what our whole series has been, right? Encountering Jesus. We want to see not the Jesus just that our culture gave us, told us what your church background maybe told you Jesus was like, or even our own faulty imaginations. Look at page seven and you see our outline. First, Jesus was fully human. Second, Jesus was full of righteous anger. And third, Jesus will fully judge. Now, just so you know, these points are not all the same length. The second point is much longer than the other two. So in case you're paying attention, that's why the second point's longer. Third will be much shorter, don't worry. All right, first one. Uh, Jesus was fully human. Look at verse 12 again. On the following day, remember? So triumphal entry goes into the temple, comes out next day. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So I don't know if he got up real early and was praying and just didn't have time to eat before they left, but for whatever reason, the man's hungry. Um, kids, does your stomach ever growl? Like when you hear it like rumbling? Jesus had the same thing happen. Isn't that wild? That Jesus, the son of God, his stomach growled sometimes. That's amazing. He really was a human. But then look what else happens. So he's hungry. He sees in the distance a fig tree and leaf. Oh, look. Well, there's a fig tree and it's covered in leaves. It probably has some figs on it. Okay, so same thing that you and I do. He walks over to it to look for figs. But what does he find? What does it say? He found nothing but leaves. For it's not the season for figs. That's just funny, isn't it? I mean, Jesus could like read people's minds. I mean, how many times is he like, he knew that they were thinking this, right? But he didn't know there were no figs on this fig tree. Is that funny? Jesus was fully man, right? So he has two, so it's a basic theology that we believe, right? That there's two natures of Jesus. But often we forget like, no, he really was a human. Like he had human things happen. I know kids, if you were going to the pantry or the refrigerator and you're looking for a snack and you can't find anything, you're like, there's nothing in here. Or parents probably have it too sometimes, right? Jesus had the same thing. If you ever stick your hand in the granola bar box, someone ate the last one and left the box in there. Isn't that terrible? Same thing. No more figs on the fig tree. No more fig newtons. <clears throat> so here, here is Jesus. Now, why is this important for us to think about? Here's why. Jesus can sympathize with you in your human condition much more than you realize. Jesus can sympathize with your human experience far more than you realize. Hebrews says this well, 
4.15, talking about Jesus, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, being Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. This should be encouraging to us. The humanity of Jesus means he's more relatable than we realize. All right, so our passage now takes this big turn, right? And which brings us to our second point. Jesus was full of righteous anger. Look at 15. So after that whole fig tree thing, which he curses, we'll come back to that. We get to 15. So he comes into Jerusalem. He enters the temple and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. That is a wild scene. Isn't that a wild scene? I don't know if some of you um, follow a YouTube channel called Dude Perfect. Have you guys heard of Dude Perfect? Well, in some of their videos, I see a hand there. Yes, it's good. You see it? I've seen it. Um, all right, good. Lots of people have seen it. All right, so in it, uh, Tyler sometimes turns into the rage monster. And for any of you that haven't seen Dude Perfect, he just goes berserk. Something triggers, he's mad, someone, you know, makes him upset, and he, like, takes baseball bats to TVs, like, just starts smashing things. I mean, thousands of dollars of damage that he's doing because he's angry. Why is this entertainment? Like, I, I don't, I mean, I, we kind of skip over that part. We're like, eh, this probably isn't something we really want to watch here. But why is that in there? Why, why do we see that as entertainment? I think part of it is it's pleasurable because that's what people want to do sometimes, isn't it? Give full vent. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to give full vent to your anger? And so you get to watch someone else do it, and they make enough off their YouTube videos, they can repair all those things that they destroy. Full vent to his anger. The rage monster. Is that what Jesus is doing? I mean, Jesus is flipping over tables. I mean, has he just lost it? I mean, he's, he has had enough. I cannot take it anymore. And he just goes berserk in the temple. How do you know that's not true? Yes? Another reason is what happened yesterday. Yesterday, he did the triumphal entry. He actually came into the temple. He looked at all that same stuff, turned around, and went home. He came back the next day, and then he starts flipping over tables. You see, this was not, this is premeditated. He knew, he said, this is not the way it should be, but now is not the right time. He's under complete control. He goes home, he comes back, and then he clears the temple. He is not the rage monster. He, he is doing, this is called righteous anger. It's something you and I will probably almost never experience. See, because why do we become angry? Why does Tyler and Dude Perfect become angry? Because someone made him mad. It's about him, something frustrated him. Why do you yell at your spouse or your kids? Because they frustrated you. Things are not going your way. Everyone is not worshiping you as king and you're upset about it. Isn't that true? Jesus is different. Look at why he even, he says, why is he so upset? Verse 17, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He loved God, and this was the place of worship of God, and they were not worshiping there. Though it's very unexpected, it is definitely another side of Jesus. But it wasn't last week, do you remember? Jesus was holding babies. Remember, he was blessing babies. That's so sweet. And now he's flipping over tables. This is the same Jesus who, with the woman at the well, so gentle with her, who's stuck in sexual immorality. Or the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He's gentle with her. 
Remember Jairus' daughter who had died. He goes and he, he, he says, little girl. And he raises her up and he says, get her something to eat. She's hungry. He's so gentle. And then here we have him clearing the temple. We just need to recognize Jesus' range of emotions. He was able to handle any situation perfectly from babies to a temple full of craziness that he needs to clear. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, it came out a long time ago, called The Patriot with Mel Gibson. <clears throat> There's a scene in there, it's revolutionary times, and all his sons think he's a coward. The pacifist, his dad, their dad was you know, not someone they respected. Well, this was all until the brother gets kidnapped or, or captured by the Redcoats, by the British. If you're familiar with the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And so then the, he takes two of his sons to go rescue the brother. And so here he is, Mel Gibson, with tomahawks and guns, and he kills every one of those Redcoats. I mean, the boys are just in shock. I mean, watching their dad, and it, it's like he's, he's a whole new different person. It was because the situation called for something very, very different. And they thought their dad was a coward. It was just they'd never seen an incident that required that of their father. This was that for the disciples. They're seeing Jesus. This is what the situation required. I mean, Jesus can't go in there like a librarian. Um, could you please take that conversation outside, please? You need to be quiet in here. No. He's flipping over tables. He's driving people out. You don't drive cattle like that, right? You don't politely ask them to move over there, please. This is Jesus. Now, if you know very carefully your gospel stories, the beginning of of John speaks of another clearing of the temple. So likely he did at the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, but that was three years ago. So both of those they were shocked at, I'm sure. They're seeing Jesus in a whole new way. You know, a little bit more of what's going on in the temple. You've got people there selling overpriced animals, right? You've got to make a sacrifice. You traveled a long way. Hey, we will sell you a perfect pigeon. This pigeon will not be rejected. It has no flaws. Here's some cattle. They have everything. This is full service, right? Point of sale, right? You want to have your stuff right there at point of sale? This is it. And then, but then your currency, you can't use currency, foreign currency. Hey, we'll change your money right here for you, but we'll scalp you in the process, Right? And so there's just, it says, den of robbers. So all this, also, you're in the temple, and you know, rather than like walk all the way around, people just started cutting right through. That's what it said. He wouldn't allow anyone to pass through. So they're passing through the court of the Gentiles just to get to the other side. I mean, there's this utter chaos in this court. Now, there's two ways in which this is terrible. The first is, imagine if you're a God-fearing Gentile, It's true of probably almost all or all of you, right? Unless you're Jewish, you're a Gentile, okay? And if you lived in the Old Testament and you feared God, as most or all of you do, then you come to Jerusalem and you've come to worship God, okay? This is great. You get there, you're so excited, but the temple is laid out. If you aren't familiar, let me give you the layout of the temple. All right, so you got Holy of Holies, only the priest goes there once a year. Uh, you're never going there. All right, then you've got the holy place. You've got the court for the priest. Okay, we still aren't going there. Then you've got the court for the, um, the Jews. Okay, we still aren't going to go there. But then there's a really big court, the largest of all, the court of the Gentiles. That's where we get to go. That's where we'd worship. Okay, so if we were in the Old Testament, that's where we'd all be going. We'd go into the court of the Gentiles, and we could worship God there. 
God set aside a big court for us. Now, where is Jesus right now? The court of the Gentiles. You see, that's the place that had completely gotten filled up with all the money changers and all the chaos. It had turned into a big market. Do you see the problem? You've traveled all the way to Jerusalem. You come into the temple to worship. And you get there, and, and you're trying to focus on God. And, and just pray. I mean, you have a hard enough time preparing your mind for worship here, right? Imagine like cattle running through here and money changers and all this noise and people cutting through from that door to that door. And, and you're like, how in the world could you worship? You see, the thing is, the Jews had lost a vision for the nations. You see, God set this aside for the nations. Even in Old Testament Israel, God already had the biggest court of all for, for foreigners to come and worship God. But they had forgotten that, and they had filled it up with all kind of nonsense. It was a big old market. You see, Hope Family, one of the things that I never want to be true of us is that we forget the nations, that we would care about every ethnicity, people that don't speak like us, look like us, or have a culture like us. May we not lose a vision as they did for those not like us. They had, and they just filled it up. You see, we're here, the rest of Cain Bay. They should be worshiping God right now. They were created just like you and me, and they're designed to worship God. That's what they're supposed to be doing, but they're missing out. So I hope you see this, this is terrible. The whole court of the Gentiles is filled up with nonsense. There's another part, part of the problem. You actually saw it in verse 17. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? Look there at 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. All the nations. He's quoting the Old Testament. All the nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. There's a second way in which this is a mess. This is flagrant disrespect of the living God. It was his temple. They had no right to repurpose it. It did not belong to them. It belonged to God. Okay, I'm going to get personal for a moment. Really personal. Okay, so think about where's the temple now? Do any of you still take pilgrimages to the temple? There is no more temple. There's no temple in Jerusalem. It's destroyed in 70 AD. Okay, what does the Bible say? That Where's the temple now? What does scripture say? It actually says it in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, 3.16, do you not know that you, believer, are God's temple? You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If you are the temple of the living God, what do your temple courts look like? What do they look like? What does your thought life look like? What's going on inside of you? When someone wrongs you, how do you respond? What's going on inside? Not just on the outside. See, the temple courts are on the inside. The entertainment that you fill your mind and your heart with, what is it like? If Jesus were to come inside, is he going to want to flip over tables in your mind and your heart and drive the worldliness out? Is he going to be comfortable there? Do you see the parallel between the Old Testament and the New Testament? You are the temple of the living God. How is Jesus feeling? Is he full of righteous anger? When he shows up, see, and he's not just going to like visit you. What do you know to be true? He lives there 24-7 all the time. He dwells in you. So are you familiar with the little allegory? We have it on the info table. Uh, My heart, Christ's home. We've talked about it a number of times. This idea that Jesus comes into a house and he moves from room to room and he wants to clean up the rooms as he comes in them. And, and you might lock some doors and say, you aren't going in there. 
right? There's, this is true. We are the temple of God. We are to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers, as verse 17 said. Okay, jump back to the scene in Jerusalem. Think about the Jewish religious leaders. Now, how do they respond? Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him. Now, this is insane. The Jewish religious leaders had not only completely failed at their job to shepherd Israel. That was their job. They were not doing it. They had completely and utterly failed at presenting the law of God. They turned into legalism. They'd utterly failed at preserving the temple. It was their job. Whose job was it? To make sure that the court of the Gentiles actually was a sacred place? It was their job. And Jesus comes and does their job. And how do they respond? They want to destroy him. Do you see how crazy that is? They were the ones that were supposed to be doing, they fell down the job on their clock. This place turned into a market. Oh, but they go on, don't they? Look at the end of the story. Jesus goes out, comes back the next day, and they start questioning his authority. What right do you have to be doing this? You see that? Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? You see, whenever you question someone's authority and you say, hey, show me ID. Who are you and why? what right do you have to be here? You're placing yourself above them, right? You're in authority and they're in your space, right? They've placed themselves above Jesus. Okay, let me illustrate that. <clears throat> Kids, you know there's a president in our country, a president of the United States. You know what his house is called? The White House, right? He lives in the White House. Do you think he ever has to show ID to get in? They're like, um, excuse me, sir, can I see some identification? Do you ever have to do that? No, that'd be silly, right? What if there was like a big conference room and he drives everyone out of it? He says, everybody out of here, get out of here. Do you think any secret service, that's what the guards are called, would come to him and say, excuse me, sir, what right do you have to be doing this? Now, no guard that wants to keep his job is going to say that, right? No, he's the president. This is his house for crying out loud. If he wants to clear a room, he can do it. This is Jesus's temple. He has every right to clear it out. And they're questioning his authority. Unbelievable. But what about you? Does he have a right to clear out your heart? Do you you question his authority? Do you say, who are you and what right do you have to tell me what to do? You see the problem? We so easily place ourselves above God. And we say, no, I'm in charge here. What right do you have? But no, it's his temple now. It's his house. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's what scripture says. That's what scripture says. So imagine you were a Gentile in the Old Testament. You've come to Jerusalem. You've come to the temple. You're horrified. You're trying to worship. And you're like, why is anyone not doing anything? you might have had this experience. You see injustice around you and you say, why is anyone not doing something? Like some, something needs to be done. Have you had that feeling before? I've had that feeling. So this is a tiny picture. As you see Jesus clearing the temple of the judgment to come, Jesus will bring judgment. He will make every wrong right. And that brings us to our third point. Jesus will fully judge Now, what was that whole business about cursing the fig tree? Was that kind of weird? I mean, was he just angry? No figs? I'm cursing you. Was he angry again? Maybe he's just in a bad, maybe he's just having a really bad day. No. 
did you know it's actually a parable? It's a parable. Sometimes he gives parables and doesn't say it's a parable. Okay, so I want you to think with me, okay? You're going to have to work with me here. We're going to figure out what it means, all right? I'm going to, I'll lead you by the hand a little bit, but figure out what it means. Okay, so what do we have? We have a fig tree, right? What does it have a lot of? Leaves. Okay, lots of leaves, but no fruit. Okay, no figs. Okay, so we have a fig tree with lots of leaves and no fruit. Okay, now context is key, right? Anytime you're looking at a parable. Okay, so that story is on either side of what? What happens in the middle? So he curses the fig tree, he comes back, and Peter's like, whoa, that thing's dead, really dead. What happened in the middle? He cleared the temple, right? Okay, so he's clearing the temple right before he curses the fig tree. Right after it, he talks about it, okay? Okay, so what, think about what, what was there that had lots of leaves, it looked really good, it looked like it was a really great thing, but it was zero fruit. First century Judaism. Do you see that? That clearing of the temple, right? It looked great. They had a big temple. They had lots of Jewish religious guys. Lots of stuff happening. It was a, a big industry. Everything is going great. Zero fruit. That's the fig tree. Cool, huh? And so what Jesus is doing, it's not about, I mean, maybe I mean, he did go. He was hungry. He really wanted a fig. But he got there and he said, this is a great teaching moment. We're going to make a parable out of this. And so he curses it. And he comes back. You know, this is also helpful because when Jesus was clearing the temple, was he reforming the temple? Was he trying to, to make it more fruitful? Like, if you would change and clear this out, this would be a great thing, a great place. No. He didn't go and prune that fig tree and say, oh, you could be fruitful. We just need to, to clip, clip it. No. He cursed it. Completely gone. Dead to the roots. You see, Jesus was condemning the temple. Does that make sense? And then what happened after that? We actually know in 70 AD, it was utterly and completely destroyed. Jerusalem was and the temple. They took the rocks. I mean, huge rocks, bigger, probably half the stage. Huge rocks. They tore everyone. They carried them down the hill. Utterly destroyed. You see, there is, and there is no more temple. Why is this good for, and important for you as a Christian? It's the reason we don't have animal sacrifice. I have no altar up here. No little lambs are be killed today. Kids, you can be glad of that. I'm glad of that. I don't want to kill a lamb. That's why. Because Old Testament Judaism was ending and Jesus was condemning it. He said, you are full of leaves and no fruit. And he cursed it. You see what's going on there? And so it was ending. An era was ending. Let's, let's zoom out for a minute. Did you know Noah? Kids, you about Noah? Noah built a big what? You can say it out loud. Ark, very good. Noah built a big ark. But before, while he was building it, he warned the people, he warned his neighbors. He said, there's going to be a great flood. Get in this boat or you're going to all drown. Nobody listened to him. Rains came, ark closed up, they all died. Big judgment. Jeremiah. Oh, I forgot. I forgot something very important. Hey, did you know Jeremiah? One way we know about that whole prophecy about uh, or the parable, was because Jeremiah used that same analogy. Jesus was pulling back from, from Jeremiah. I almost missed this. This is good. All right, Jeremiah 8 says this, 8.13. Jeremiah is talking about Israel, who's being unfruitful then too. When I would gather them, uh, 
when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there was no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, important to note. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So Jeremiah is using the illustration of Israel being unfruitful of a fig tree with no figs. Hmm, well, that sounds familiar. Then later in chapter uh, 24 in Jeremiah, God gives a vision to Jeremiah of two baskets of figs. One of them is good figs, one of them is bad figs, rotten figs. And it's talking about two parts of Israel. To the bad figs, he condemns. It's talking about the, the destruction of that part of Israel. Okay, so Jesus is just picking up on this theme from Jeremiah. So that was important to note. Okay, so you insert that in your minds back there. Okay, jumping forward. We're zooming out. Noah, right? Preached destruction. The prophets, Jeremiah and the other prophets, warned the people and said, you need to repent or you will go into exile. God will turn you over to your enemies. Did they listen? No. And they all got kicked into exile. Jesus comes and he's, he's clearing the temple, saying the kingdom has come. Repent. Many did not. And then in 70 AD, it was absolutely destroyed. In seminary, I had to read the historical accounts of the destruction, the siege on Jerusalem. It is the only time in seminary my stomach turned and I became nauseous because it is so awful of what happened in Jerusalem. It is just terrible. I'm sure other terrible things have happened, but I haven't had to read about them. It was awful. God was not kidding. Jesus was not kidding when he talked about the destruction that was coming. But all three of those, Noah, the prophets, and Jesus, are all tiny pictures of what? The judgment to come. You see, Jesus is coming back. He promised. He said he's coming back. We have this even in the Apostles' Creed. It says this. He, descended, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. You see, Jesus is coming back. And everything we saw through the history of the world, from Noah to the prophets, and then on up to Jesus, as we read today, was a tiny picture of what is to come. Jesus will fully judge. And so if you have been holding out and saying, ah, maybe I'll wait a little bit longer, I would not recommend that as your own king with your doors shut and saying, you aren't coming here and clearing out this temple. I'm going to run things the way I want to. It is not advisable. All those judgments are no joke. And all of those are a tiny picture of what is to come. Now, if you're a Christian, you should feel comfort to know that all false religion will wither and be destroyed and you'll be vindicated and saved. You have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Jesus tells us exactly how to respond in verse 22. He answered them and said, have faith in God. Have faith in God. You know, and then look at those verses right after it. He says, you can say to this mountain, be thrown to the sea. He's talking about prayer. He says, if you believe, it'll be done. Whatever you ask in prayer. You see, in Judaism, you had to have me. You had to go to the temple. You had to go to a place. You don't have to go to a place. This is one way that Catholicism, if, if you came out of Catholicism, you know this. You have lots of mediators. You have Mary and the saints, right? And you have all these mediators that you can pray to, right? They, they're picking up a little bit of Old Testament Judaism, Right? You, need, you don't need that anymore. What does Jesus say? You pray and God does it. That's really good news. It's really good news. You don't need any mediator. 
It says, forgive. It says, whatever you, whenever you stand praying, you forgive. You don't have to go to the, the priest. You don't have to go, whether it's, we're talking about Catholicism or Old Testament, right? You just get to, you interact with God. Now, of course, we gather here, but do you see how everything is changing? Jesus is talking about this whole new world where now you get to pray and God just delights to answer because he loves you. I love this picture. So as, as we conclude, I ask you again, what is Jesus like? Is he tender? Of course. Is he compassionate? Of course. Is he omnipotent? Of course. But we also see that he's fully human. He got hungry. His stomach growled, just like yours might be growling now, and it will in a little bit. Right? He can empathize with you more than you realize, but he's also fully God. He was full of righteous anger, not an ounce of sinful anger like you and I have. When he cleared that temple, his every right, because it's his house, please hear me. Let him clear your temple. Don't stop him. Don't ask him for for authorization. Who are you and what, what business do you have in my heart? No, just open the doors and let him. It will be much happier, much happier place to live. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, please help us. Lord, please help us that we would have soft hearts. We would not harden our hearts. Lord, that's the work of your spirit. Thank you that you've done it in, in so many of them. I pray for any that are holding out that you would soften their hearts. And that even as they hear your word being preached, that you would be stirring in their hearts, that they would not be like a fig tree with lots of leaves, but no fruit. Lord, only you can bring fruit through the Spirit. We can't, we can't manufacture that. Lord, I pray that you'd move. And in all of our lives, Lord, there are parts of my life that you still need to clear and tables you probably still need to flip over. And Lord, I invite you to do that. Lord, may you do that in all of our hearts and lives. May we be open and willing to, that we, we, that we would be holy temples because we want to worship you as we're about to do right now. Lord, please hear our praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.